Ronaldo and Isolier now became friends together to the attack of the horse. They found Bayard and stood a long time concealed by the wood, admiring his strength and beauty. A bright bay in color with a silver star in his forehead, his body slender, his head delicate, his chest filled out with swelling muscles, his broad back and full his legs, straight and sinewy, his mane falling over his arching neck. He came through the forest, regardless of rocks and bushes or trees, rending everything that opposed his way. He first saw Isolier and rushed upon him, fiercely rearing, now on this side, now on that. Then the knight struck him with a sword where the white star adorned his forehead, but he struck in vain and felt ashamed, thinking that he struck feebly, for he did not know that the skin of the horse was so tough that the keenest sword could make no impression upon it. The next moment, Bayard was upon his foe with such a buffet that the pagan fell stunned and lifeless to the earth. Ronaldo saw Isilir fall and darted toward the horse. With his fist, he gave him such a blow on the jaws that it tinged his mouth with vermilion. Quicker than an hour leaves the bow, the horse turned upon him and tried to seize his arm with his teeth. The knight stepped back and then, repeating his blow, struck him on the forehead. Thus the contest continued until, by chance, Bayard's foot got caught between the branches of an oak. Ronaldo seized it and, putting forth all his strength and address, threw him on the ground. No sooner had Bayard touched the ground than all his rage subsided. No longer an object of terror, he became gentle and quiet, yet with dignity in his mildness. The paladin patted his neck, stroked his breast, and smoothed his mane, while the animal neighed and showed delight to be caressed by his master. Rinaldo, seeing him now completely subdued, took the saddle and trappings from the other horse and adorned Bayard with the spoils. Later, riding Bayard, Rinaldo became the most illustrious knight of Charlemagne's court, second only to Roland. I'm Ian McInnes. My co-host, Alexa Sand, cannot be here today, but this is still Real Fantastic Beasts, because we believe that learning about animals in literature and art and history helps us understand our fellow creatures today. So I'm excited today. Uh, we were going to be talking about the horse in the Middle Ages. We are going to have another episode on the horse in the Renaissance. There's so much to be said about horses that we're, are, we're trying to get two episodes out of this. And today we have a guest, Alan Utram, who is an archaeologist at the University of Exeter. Alan has published numerous books and articles. Some of his work has focused on the domestication of the horse. For our purposes, Alan is a zoo archaeologist, which means that he works with animal remains. And the most interesting project, I guess, for, uh, for the purposes of this podcast is a project called Warhorse: the Archaeology of a Military Revolution, which is a systematic archaeological study of warhorses in the Middle Ages from the late Anglo-Saxon to the early Tudor period. And that's, I think, the work that, that we're going to be drawing on, although I'm really interested, Alan, in what you've had to say about the domestication of the horse in Central Asia or Eastern Europe. But that that's another that's another story. It's probably a good thing to to maybe begin with the just the central nature of the horse in at least the middle of the Middle Ages. Horses are so important, perhaps more important than English speakers realize because in in French the name for the elite group itself, the knights, came from the animals they rode. They were chevaliers, which comes from cheval, which is horse. So this is a horse riding elite. And, you know, it's, it's worth asking, like, how and when did horses become so popular? Uh, you know, like, what is the story that, that gave us the, the horse as the central animal? 
in terms of the importance of the horse and its association with elites, it goes back a, a lot earlier than that. It probably goes all the way back to the, the Bronze Age, uh, when um, the modern lineage of domestic horses spreads across the entirety of Eurasia. And it does so incredibly quickly. And it does so probably because it does become an essential item that elites want. It gives a huge advantage in warfare. It, it, it speeds up uh, trade. It is something that, that shows off your importance um, to other people. So I think the Bronze Age elites spread it very quickly and traded in horses right across Eurasia incredibly fast. So it's a very long history. So that association goes back a very, very long way indeed. But in terms of the Middle Ages, um, it's probably a, a, an horizon around a thousand AD across Europe when it becomes a more particular association um, in using horses as a way of demonstrating that you are an aristocrat. That is when the notion of aristocracy as as it becomes in the Middle Ages really starts to take off um, rather than purely just talking about kings and so on. It's the, the, the full notion of, of what it is to be an aristocrat. And about you know, 1000 AD, a horse was definitely a good horse. It was part of the trappings of that. So, you know, I know that horses are mentioned, say, in Beowulf, uh, but there, there's not a lot of horse riding in Beowulf, so they're they're mentioned as part of the you know the trappings along with hawks, right? The traditional kind of aristocratic trappings, but but we also have this impression that they're they're these warriors are often uh, infantry. They're 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 foot warriors, and you know you've got yes. the, uh, a lot of Scandinavian cultures are associated with that. So is this is Beowulf occurring at like a transitional moment where it would already have been you know that sort of uh, Looking back to the past would have been in part uh, because there were far fewer horses being referred to. Yeah, the use of horses in the earlier period. I mean, there are there are definitely depictions as well, not just not just literary references of people fighting on horseback. That there are uh, Pictish carvings of, of of people on on horseback with spears or or swords. That you know, there are Viking depictions for sure, um, but. The usage wasn't as great. Quite frequently, the horses were used as a way to get to the battle, and then people would dismount, fighting on horseback. Actually, it isn't something that happens right the way across the entirety of the medieval period either. There was sometimes quite a lot of worry about uh, fighting on horseback uh, because the horses could get startled and run away, or indeed it's a way in which your forces could flee quickly. So sometimes there's quite a big thing made of dismounting, because if you've dismounted, you're sort of stuck there and you're going to do it. There's no way of quickly running off. It, it can it can run either way. You know, it can be a very, very useful tool of battle, but at the same time, it can be a very good way of running off fast. So it, it's, a, it's a double-edged sword. And certainly in the earlier period, there's much more of the horses being used to get to where the battle is quickly, which obviously does provide an advantage. But the fighting itself was more often on foot. Although, as I say, we definitely have some depiction of some some fighting. Say, Sorry, it's funny but... to think of getting off the horse as being demonstrating bravery. For, when, for me, getting on the horse is the brave thing to do. <laughs> yes, I say, it can, and it can be both ways, depending on how the horse is being used. But there definitely are passages um, of, of records of battles which suggest that dismounting was an important, an important thing to do. But in this in this earlier period, it was really the case that, that horses were more for quickly getting to where you needed to be militarily rather than fighting on horseback quite so much. And the same actually applies to hunting, because quite a lot of the early medieval hunting 
was not the same either. It wasn't necessarily on horseback. There was a lot more use of, uh, of trapping nets and so on in, in, in Anglo-Saxon in Anglo-Saxon hunting. Not the same sort of coursing on, on horses that, uh, that you think of for the later periods. Um, so yes, there was less, slightly less of the equestrianism in there. Not to say that there wasn't some of it happening, but it certainly increased and became much more of a symbol of aristocracy from around 1000 AD across Europe. So what did those earliest you know, military horses look like, the ones that were carrying people to the battlefield but perhaps not participating in it? Do we have an idea of what the earliest war horses were like? Interestingly, the records often don't tell us an awful lot about exactly what the animals were like, and particularly not about their size. They're really quite silent on that. And indeed, the passage you read at the start didn't really tell us much about size. It was obviously telling <laughs> us that the horse was incredibly impressive, but it didn't actually tell us specifically about size. Now, one way we can think about that from depictions is the relative size of the horse and the rider. So one of the things we've done a little bit of looking at in various types of material culture is thinking about where the legs go to. And certainly in a lot of these earlier earlier um, representations, the legs dangle a lot below the body of the animal, rather implying that the animal isn't of huge stature necessarily. And at some later period, you begin to get where the, the legs are only getting down to the, the abdomen of the animal, which is presumably a much bigger bigger animal indeed. If the depictions are reliable, of course, which is another problem you've got to, to deal with. Um, so that's where the zooarchaeology can help quite a bit in terms of actually measuring real bones. And there is a way of deriving an approximate stature from measuring the long bones of, of the horse's legs. It isn't actually the case that Saxon horses were particularly small by comparison to the high medieval period, but they're still not very large. The average is going to be around 13 hands high. And I'll give you a few reference points on hands, just so, so that people will oh, get what this means. The hand high is the, is the, is the standard equestrian measure of, of height. It's basically four inches, and obviously it's supposed to be to do with the size of a hand that you could work your way up the horse's leg to its withers, which is the shoulder blade. So this is not measuring to the top of the head. This is from the bottom of the front leg, from the hoof up to the top of the shoulder blade um, at, the, at the front of the horse's back. Um, and so, yes, in hands. Now, the modern definition which distinguishes a pony from a horse is 4.2 hands. In other words, uh, sorry, 14.2 oh, hands, not yeah. four. We're very small. 14.2 <laughs> hands, um, which is 14 hands and two inches. And that is a modern thing. That is a modern definition, I have to stress. But that is what we see as the division between a pony and a horse today. Indeed, the word pony doesn't even go back into the Middle Ages. It's a, it's a more of a modern uh, construct. But that's certainly our division for what a small horse is. So the fact of the matter is, is that the vast majority, the very vast majority of medieval horses would be by modern standards, ponies. Not that they would have called them ponies or thought of it that way at all, because as I say, they didn't have the word pony. They were all horses to them. But today they would be thought of as ponies now these are not necessarily don't think about shetland ponies they're tiny uh, ponies can be bigger than that they can still be very able animals but nonetheless these are small animals so let me talk about some other you know things just to give you a bit of a framework the minimum for a police horse in most police forces i mean obviously change a bit around the world but looking around it's about 16.2 hands they'll use as a minimum and frankly most of them are above 17 the same with yeah. the sorts of horses that you see the the royal guard that you know the 
household cavalry riding, they'll be above 17 hands by and large. And actually, most sport horses are too. So if you think about the horses people ride for three-day eventing, they're often over 17 hands. So the horses back in the in, in the um, early Middle Ages, and indeed up to the, the, the high Middle Ages, were generally speaking around 13 hands. A little bit of evidence that, that some of the um, Scandinavian horses were even smaller on average. So Viking horses were potentially even smaller than that. And if you take areas of Europe where you've got that type of in, indigenous northern, north, northwest European horse still there, and then you get uh, the arrival of um, new forces. So if you take, if you take um, the Crusades into Lithuania and Latvia to Christianize it, the horses that are there locally um, are a lot smaller, actually, than those of the, the High Middle Ages that arrive with those um, um, with those crusading forces. So they, they were, I mean, they were getting a little bigger, but they were still pretty small. I, I would say um, we, we have had uh, two Morgan horses, which are technically horses, although the smaller one, I think, was 14 hands, so he was technically a pony. But I will say that a 14-hand pony feels like a pretty big pony, I, you know, like, and on on that horseback, you feel, you you still feel as though, you know, you're on horseback. So, yep. for those of our uh, audience who are familiar with horses, this is all going to be, you know, this will all make a lot of sense. If you're not familiar with with horses yep. and you think a pony is a tiny creature, you know, ponies can can be solid and big and do amazing things just as much as, you know, what we call horses now. What about the the sort of body shape or conformation? And this may be a place where you know audience. Our, our audience members who are familiar with horses will have a, it's easier to speak to them in some ways but are they you know what what are they what do they look like there aren't particularly good uh, descriptions of confirmation um in the way that we would think about it, you know precise descriptions of confirmation we have done a certain amount of work and continuing to do work on horse shape using uh, fairly sophisticated methods that we haven't quite finished yet um doing something called geometric morphometrics uh, which is a complex way of uh, analysing shape of bones. Um, but we've done quite a lot of talking to people that ride horses that do the sort of work that war horses would have needed to do, and also to, to people that do jousting reconstruction and so on. Uh, and some of that does match up with some of the measurements we're beginning to get through. So what we think a good war horse would be like is that it would be powerful to the back, have a very strong rump, fast acceleration, but also quite a short back. Um, it would be able to maneuver and turn quickly and accelerate quickly. Um, it would have good straight legs to the back as well. That's the sort of confirmation that we think is needed. And possibly some of these aspects were more important to people in the medieval period of selecting horse than, than purely size alone. And also, you've got to think about temperament for a war horse. You've got mm -hmm. to think about the fact that it has to survive in a battle environment I think raw size is possibly something that people have focused on a little bit too much. And really, you've got to think about the confirmation and temperament and training to a much greater extent uh, as well. Yeah. So these days, you know, when people think about size, they assume that the bigger the horse, the more it looks like a draft horse. And therefore, that that would be the ideal when that's not at all right, the yes, case. Yes, so draft horses. <laughs> you know, draft, draft, draft breeds yeah. Yeah, are, are usually, they get up to 18 hands. They're huge. Um, yeah. the largest known horse was a, a Shire draft horse that um, reached over 21 hands. It was in the 19th century, a horse called Samson, 
but draft horses are like that are, are relatively recent development. Uh, yeah. We have no evidence for 18 hand horses at all um, until the last 200 years in, in terms of actual physical bones. So horses begin to get a little bit larger into the late medieval period, and we begin to see things rising up a little bit into the earlier post-medieval uh, Renaissance period as well. That there definitely is improvement happening. The maximum sort of horse size we get through that earlier, through the Norman and high medieval period, is about 15 hands, the ones that we've absolutely observed in, in bones. And then in the late medieval period and, and earlier post-medieval period, we are seeing 16 hand horses, but not much more than that. There is a great document we've come across dating to 1601, which um, lists a huge number of horses that have been gathered from noblemen and clerics around the country for a war in Ireland. And it lists off, that's one of the first documents to list off hands high of a very large number of horses. And the, nice. the largest horses in that are 17 hands. And the average one is 15 by that point. Right. And they're, they're being gathered for use in military, for military purposes. So yes, the, the really big the really big um, Shire horses and equivalent breeds are, are, are really a modern, a modern phenomenon, post-agricultural revolution and industrial revolution phenomenon. We've not just looked at the sizes of, of the animal's bones, the skeleton. We've also realized that, that horses often have an exoskeleton in the form of both their shoes what? and ah, also okay. their armor. <laughs> okay. So they're on the outside, but they also relate to the animal's size. And we have been able to demonstrate that actually shoe size does have a decent correlation with stature, like the bones nice. do. And actually looking at um, examples of medieval horseshoes, which have different types, so we can get approximate date ranges, that actually that maps beautifully onto the animal bone data. So it extends the animal bone data and agrees with it. And, and shows exactly the same pattern of when horses start to get larger. So the, the shoes work too. But the interesting thing about measuring horse armour, and we've particularly done it on the chaffron, which is the piece of armour that is the head armour, extends from the top of the head down the front of, of the face, is that we've been able to relate that to horse, uh, horse size as well. Particularly a measurement that you take from the centre of the eye hole to the uh -huh. ear hole where the ear comes out is nicely anatomically related and there is a good relationship between um, the cranial vault size of a horse or at least a decent relationship and um, and also stature now what's important about the armor is that unlike horseshoes or the bones those things don't tell us what the horse was used for Whereas if you're measuring armor, you at least know something about the function. Yes. You know that horse was in full armor, probably with a fully armored knight on top, who was either using it in warfare or in jousting or at least in prestige display. And, and actually, that tells us the same story as well. It seems that, you know, almost half, um, certainly uh, more than 40 percent of chaffrons were likely made for, um, at least in the modern day, a pony-sized animal. Probably still a large pony, as we've talked about. But, yeah. you know, the, the armour agrees with what we're suggesting. Um, and certainly doesn't, the armour doesn't require you to have a ridiculously large horse. So in the end, we conclude from our armour measurements, and we've measured quite a lot of it, that possibly your destriers that were wearing that type of armour, maybe between 14 and 16 hands, whereas the average mm -hmm. horse was 13. 
So, okay, not a not a massive horse by the modern standards of today of 17, 18 hands. But if you still think about if the if the if average horse is thirteen hands and the ones in armour were fourteen to sixteen, then they're one, two, three hands higher and in full armour. They're going to be very much more impressive, aren't they? Yes. So, so um, all of those lines of evidence tell the same tell the same story and back up this notion that that that, that you know, average medieval horses were small and these grander horses used by the aristocracy were probably larger, but still small by modern standards, just relatively larger, 14 to 16 hands. The yeah. very largest chaffron we've measured is is one of Henry VIII's. It's massive. <laughs> so he, he probably had the biggest the biggest horse. Not all of them, he has several, and we've measured several of his, but this is from when he was active jousting when he was a younger man. And one of the horses okay. he had was had an absolutely massive chaffron. Henry VIII. Tower of London. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, we've we've measured some impressive things we had access to. We've measured, we've measured the armor of the horse armor of uh, many kings, and uh, we have to give lots of thanks to uh, the royal armories and the royal collections and the imperial armories in Austria, and uh, they they all were very good at allowing us to uh, handle some unique things. Nice, very very nice. Yeah, as far as Henry VIII goes, you know, this is my surprised face. That <laughs> yeah, right. Of course, his, his horse is bigger. Now, I, I have heard somewhere that the Normans preferred to ride stallions or, you know, intact male horses. Is that supported by zoo archaeology that they, they used mainly, uh, <laughs> well, you know? All the literature says this. So is this supported by the zoo archaeology? We don't know because it isn't actually possible to tell that from from horses' bones. You can sometimes tell about whether or not uh, male animals are uh, are being castrated or not in some species, but it's quite difficult even in them. This is something we may be able to do in the future, actually, because um, the geneticists I work with um, are telling me that they potentially have a handle on that. Now, you may be wondering how on earth do they have a handle on that, because genetics, of course, you think doesn't tell you about things that happen in life. It's... uh, it, it, genetics are passed on. It's you know you chop off a mouse's tail, then that mouse will still have a offspring which have a tail. But actually, right. there are some ways of telling about activity during life in genetics, and it's 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 referred to as epigenetics. Mm-hmm. It's damage that occurs in our genetic coding as we get older. So actually, at the very cutting edge of ancient genetics, they're beginning to look at these epigenetic markers that look at the degradation in your DNA as you multiply copy it through your own life. It goes it gets worse and worse in a way. And so those epigenetic markers go up. So potentially you can tell um, approximate age of death as to how damaged that is. But also it begins to show up in certain epigenetic markers if an animal has been castrated in life, that later on that will show up differently epigenetically. It's sort of just the methods are just coming as possibilities just now and haven't really been applied in any great number to anything yet so i i can see how you might not be able to tell whether a horse has been castrated or not but can the bones tell us whether you're they're female or male horses that are being used yes they can do that if you have the right bit but there are only two really air, two areas on the horse that do it unlike some animals um horses are not um very sexually dimorphic based upon size sometimes just raw size can do it that doesn't work mm-hmm. with horses you can tell 
from the presence or absence of large canines. Huh. Stallions have good big canines. Um, females can have tiny little ones or no canines at all. Uh, but those that's that's one way. So if you have the jaw, you can you can do male and female. And if you have the pelvis, you can do it as well because um, there are there just like there are in humans, there are there are different um, morphologies of the pelvis related to uh, childbirth. Certainly, all the evidence we have, um, and most of it is literature, but but there is nothing that contradicts that from the zoo archaeology. Is that indeed in in the, in the English medieval world, the, the destrier, the the big charger type of horse was was male, always male, mm-hmm. and and the stallion intact stallion that is something that they're they're very clear about and i, and I guess that's something to do with wishing there to be aggression still there to a greater extent although not absolutely every not absolutely everybody that used horses in warfare took the same idea but that certainly was the case and and some of it might have been properly practical to do with the aggression levels but actually some of it may have just been you know an aspect of masculine bravado that they wanted a stallion Yes, I, certainly. I know. To me, that seems more. Modern. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there there are differences in temperament, and 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 certainly a stallion will will potentially give you some more aggression. But uh, yeah, I, I think it just fits into an overall worldview um, to a certain extent. Um, and actually, you see this bias in worldview when you look at Henry VIII's attempts to improve the size of horses, because he passes a set of laws to try and get horse sizes up. And he specifies minimum numbers of hands that you require and sets that it's a minimum of 13 hands for the female horse and a minimum of 14 hands for the male horse. Now, actually, there's no particularly (laughs) good reason for setting it like that. There's there's an assumption there that the the male horse will have greater effect on the on the end size. And that's not necessarily the case at all. You could you could use a large female horse to do the same thing. So. so Henry VIII is seeing uh, sexual dimorphism where there isn't any, perhaps, or you know, wishing that there, just assuming that there is, yeah. or assuming greater importance of the male. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so horses were used in war, but also for other purposes. And I've always wondered, in particularly in the the British Isles, that sort of the development of you know the war horse is that. Is that the driving in a sort of is that driving the increase in horses period, or is an increase in horses helping to drive the uses of horses for for warfare? I mean obviously or horses they just, are used for is it just very, all simultaneous they're used for a, a lot of things all the way through um so uh yeah, there are huge numbers of horses being used for transport, and of course, when we start talking about a war horse, there are lots of different types of war horses. So we ought to go through that. I suppose that the, the, the big, the really big charger that you think of has been heavily armoured, charging into a, a, a line in battle um, with lances and so on. That that is what's referred to as a destrier, which is supposed to be the most powerful of the the great horses. But aristocrats would have other types of horses as well. Coursers would be used in hunting, but also in in warfare. But they would be expected to be a little bit lighter and faster. And maybe lighter and faster over a longer period of time, whereas perhaps the destrier was heavier and stronger, but perhaps only for shorter periods of time, maybe mm-hmm. a bit of speculation in that. Then you've got palfreys, which are very much more a riding horse, and rounces as, as well as, a, as, another, as another type. The rounces 
were a general purpose horse, much more of a general purpose horse, but could also be trained trained for war or used for uh, men at arms, uh, etc., within the retinue rather than than perhaps for the knight. So there are those those four those four main types that aristocrats would would keep. But yes, there obviously are horses being used in agriculture. The use of animals in agriculture increases over time. In terms of heavy working agriculture, that was done by oxen initially. Incidentally, the oxen are also a lot smaller than than modern oxen. So that's I don't know if anyone's ever looked at medieval manuscript drawings of of oxen pulling a plough, and you think those are ridiculously small. Surely the drawing is poor. Not so much, actually, because you know the things like the Dexter breed. If 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 you want, if people want to see you know, the size of a medieval cow, look up the Dexter breed and and look for pictures online of that. They're, they're actually quite small, but nonetheless, oxen would do a lot of the heavy, slow stuff. And slowly over time, you see horses taking over into the late medieval period, and certainly take over with the development of those um, um, of those breeds like the Shire much later on. But it's a slow change. So initially, it's it's more oxen that we're doing the agricultural work. Yeah, I mean that that would imply that the, sort of the driving uh, sort of force is the is the aristocracy and the you know proliferation of all those different horse kinds that you mentioned makes horses available, which then can slowly be you know taken up in in agriculture rather than uh, the other way around. But uh, so a knight on you know like on campaign, you have to imagine a whole. You know, a retinue and a variety of horses being used, uh, not mm. just uh, you know your traditional literary romance image of the knight on horseback as this singular feature. Yes, so yeah, Figure. you've got different horses used in fighting, but also different horses in the in the much larger retinue, um, because of course you've got to transport yeah. a huge amount of um, material. So some of them are purely transport horses, or for the, for the retinue. Others would be selected for different purposes. They wouldn't be using a destrier to to um, um, chase down fleeing enemy that after after a battle is broken. They would be using um, probably you know palfreys or courses or for that purpose. Um, yeah, not necessarily um, yeah the, the destriers at all. So there would be use of different horse types for different things. But certainly within the breeding for war horses, there was it, it, there was a there was a proper breeding program and training program. It was taken very seriously indeed. The particularly if you look at the the royal horses, which are very well documented. Other aristocrats would have had similar systems running for themselves, but they're slightly less well documented. But we still actually have all the records, pretty much, of the keeper of the king's horse. And they had an extensive breeding program with with stu- a stud network around the country, mm-hmm. where they would would be breeding for particularly to try and get good destriers. And it was a complex network. Uh, it wasn't just a, a that there would be a place where all the breeding occurred and all the animals were kept. They moved the animals around to different places. So some of the uh, locations in the stud network would specialise in in um, in looking after the colts, the young. Um, that was were produced in other places where the actual breeding took place, where the mares were kept. So yeah, they, they had specialist purposes. So they 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 were clearly looking after these horses very very well indeed, and and the accounts show that they were given really very expensive medical treatments. They certainly told us quite a lot about um, the the destriers themselves. Usually they list off their coat colour. Um, often where they came from and who they were given by and so on. Again, they don't tell us size. It's one of the annoying things. That's where we left again with the zoarchaeological remains to work on the size. They don't tell us, never tell us the size. But 
that in of itself is important, isn't it? Because it rather indicates that the thing that marks out the good destriere is less to do with that than some of the other, other things. Otherwise, surely, you know, if that was the be-all and end-all, then it would be something they mentioned. Then, yeah, it would um, be the first but thing. But it isn't, it isn't ever what they mention. Yeah. It tells us how much their feed costs, and they're feeding them very well. They, uh, Unlike a lot of other horses, they're getting a very large amount of oats. They fed heavily on oats, the destriers, mm-hmm. um, to build them up. But yes, so um, after you've you've got your male uh, colts, your young uh, male colts, they um, they will be kept together um, at one of the places in the stud network, which were usually at the side of a deer park attached to a castle. They were usually okay. you know on, on the edge of of, of a larger um, park, and those colts would actually be allowed to run pretty much free for two or three years. They wouldn't do much with them. And then the training would begin to happen after that. And that training, actually, if, if we follow some of the literary um, sources, like, so for instance, uh, Jodinus Gen- Gen- Rufus, an Italian aristocrat that wrote about horse training, then it's, it's a fairly gentle process of trying to get the animal used to all the things it has to get used to gently introducing it to the bit i think he mentions adding honey to the bit to make it um, more palatable initially for the young colt to wear and then getting used to all the other things that it has to wear and get used to things that are made out of metal and so on and so forth and i know that's what people that um, do jousting today do i certainly talked to uh, people that have jousting horses today and they have to get them used to the sounds of metal and armor and not just wearing it but the sounds they make and obviously um the noises that you get around that sort of activity as well so it's a gentle introduction getting them used to that material and what it sounds like so that they will tolerate it i know that uh, there was a um an attempt at a um a big reconstruction of a joust in the 19th century where they did none of this preparation they just got some some horses and attempted to put armor on them and make them do these things and the whole thing the whole thing turned into a complete disaster with all of these horses bucking and running off all over the place um yes it so it's a Jordanus rufus certainly talks about uh, the gentle introduction of these things and i know that's what the the people that do this today also also do. It's it's so interesting because we often think about training as being, you know, getting the animal to do specific things and less about desensitization and, you know, getting the animal accustomed to certain environments and certain things like running, you know, straight running straight at another horse, which is a little bit unnatural uh for them to do. Um but that, yes, that and actually, makes it less written about kinder. Geranus Rufus talks about these these desensitization things quite a lot more than talks about that more advanced training of battle tactic, getting yeah. it to to run towards another horse or something like that. There's much less information about that. In fact, there's more information about training people to do things when it comes to those aspects, uh, and much less about the training the horse. Although I suspect it works in the same way that it would be gently introduced. You just take things at a step at a time when practicing with the animal to get it used to doing these things. Of course, for some of the jousting, not all of it, but some of the jousting, particularly the later jousting, um, particularly the Germanic type Renan, where they were using sharp lances and the armor was very, very heavy. The human armor was very heavy and had extra pieces attached to it to deflect uh, the lance and the horse armor was heavy. They were using blind chaffrons. The chaffron is the, the metal covering on the front of the horse's face, um, just to define that piece of armour. 
Um, and in, in, in Germanic Renan jousting, those chaffrons were blind. So the horse wow. was just running, running blind. Yeah. Well, I, I, I can imagine why they might, they might have to do that. It's interesting because, you know, many of the uh, early modern scholars that I know in the scholarship on horses assumes that, that the idea of, of sort of, you know, training through kindliness is, you know, maybe a new thing in the 17th century. And clearly it's not uh, at, at all, um, even though, you know, they, they certainly are much more interested in how do you get horses to do specific behaviors, particularly behaviors that are not not all that natural. You know, they are about sort of training in the modern sense. But, you know, that human-animal yeah, I, relationship I actually, is, is, is consistent. Yes, that's right. And I actually think that um, you'd have a lot of trouble making <laughs> making you know in, in a sort of like nasty way with whips and so on making a warhorse do what you want it to do yeah um I, I think that wouldn't work it would i think it would continue to reject but also i'm not sure that that would then work very well in battle because if the the rider in battle is needing to concentrate on other things they want a horse that's behaving itself not a horse that they're going to having to control by force so I think yes. I think that that sort of violent method is not necessarily appropriate. Interestingly, when it comes down to sort of violent control, there's a, a quite a lot of debate you can have actually about the form of bit worn by a warhorse. The normal type of bit that most people ride with today, and indeed in the past people rode with, was something called a snaffle bit, which um, is um, two or three pieces of metal with links in the middle, which are in the horse's mouth, and largely you just pull pull back on it and it pulls back towards the 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 two tooth row within the horse's mouth onto its cheeks but actually horses that we used as war horses wore something called a curb bit and that's a straight bar of metal which goes across the horse's mouth but it also had on that straight bar it had something called a port which sticks back into the horse's mouth further on the top of the tongue and then there are levers on the outside of the bit. And if you pull those levers, the port shoves up into the, um, the roof of the mouth of the horse, into its palate. Now, that isn't very nice. And the levers no. on these can be very long. So the amount of force that could be applied to a war horse from the bit is considerable. So what is all that about? Is that about really needing a bit that applies a lot of force and a lot of pain to the animal to control it? That might be one school of thought, and it might be a bit, again, the bravado that my, my stallion is so difficult to control, I have to have this massive bit with this massive lever. But again, is that really what's happening here? And is that really something that would work? Or would you end up with a horse that's not going to be at all cooperative because you're hurting it too much and, and so on and so forth? So talking again to people, different people who do a lot of riding, there's a lot more thought that actually... This type of bit is much more about it, something that's fairly self-regulating. It, it's not. It's not being. It's not actually being pulled on hard. The idea is is that actually it will hold the horse's head in a particular posture, um, without without the rider having to do very much. It's about it's about a type of bit that allows the the rider to get on with fighting rather than something that they're pulling on very hard. So there's debate there, though. I mean, you know, that's not that's not known for sure, but. But it, it is an interesting feature, though, that the, the war horses all have this very fearsome-looking type of bit um, compared to what a normal horse would have. But it might actually be all about 
a horse that is under control without the rider having to do very much. That's an interesting argument because that uh, the, those kinds of uh, bits do certainly persist through the early modern period and have been a you know people have talked about you know what what does that mean about the human animal relationship because they can be so harsh. I want to I want to back up a, a little. I was fascinated by the way you talk about the network, the breeding network, and the fact that they would have move, be moving horses around within that network, you know, maybe at different times of life, because it means that the, you know, the, that the roads are in some ways, you know, that that's, that's where they would, you know, that you'd, you'd move them through the road network such as it was. And the road network was also used for droving. And, you know, we, today we think of roads as places to move people and goods and in which, you know, back in the day, animals might've helped that, but we, we don't think of roads as primarily ways to move animals uh, in the way that they probably were in the in the uh, pre-modern period, you know, it's a it's a different idea of what like what, what a road itself is for. Yeah, I think a lot uh, of animals did they, uh, would have been, been been moved on roads. Yeah, all of the terms that you mentioned, the medieval terms like a like the destrier, uh, those are you know as a as like a Elizabethan scholar, those are like sort of unfamiliar to me. They were interested in horses, and they they talked about them more in terms of regional origin, and I wonder. Is there, are there, is there a trade or, or an international trade in horses uh, in the Middle Ages at all? Or is that really just something that emerges much later when they're uh, trying to get Arab horses and, uh, you know, barbs from North Africa? And like, is that, is that sort of a, a later feature of the horse trade? No, I, I think uh, horse trade happens quite early. Uh, and in fact, there are some references to that. Um, and in fact, we've got a bit of evidence for it, uh, in fact. Um, so let's let's think about it uh, in terms of literature. I know that um, there is some historical documentation of the Normans buying horses from Spain even before the conquest. Huh. So why from Spain? Well, of course, by that point, Spain does already have North African, um, Arabian, Persian lineages moving in because of the caliphate. And indeed, some of the ancient genetics that's already uh, been undertaken, and much more is going to come out shortly um, on, on the medieval period. But some of the ancient genetics on medieval horses indicates that you begin to see Arabian Persian input into European horses as early as um, sort of the ninth century AD through that sort of wow. route. And, and so that's probably then you know backs up what some of that uh, that that historical reference to horses being purchased. purchased. Um, from Spain, and that, that's the root of that. So it is it is coming in earlier. Now, we have to be a little bit careful when we talk about Arab, because the Arab is a modern breed. Um, and that doesn't necessarily absolutely equate to Arab input in at that date. There, we took, we're using the word Arab or Persian as a, um, a geographical location from which genetics is coming and horses are coming, uh, doesn't necessarily absolutely equal what we would refer to as the Arab breed today, which is a very specific right. thing. So more like um, a, Levin, Le yeah, which, a Levantine region. Yes. I mean, I mean, just the, from the Arab world. Um, but yeah, right. it's just, just that, that the Arab is, is now a very specific breed, breed type, which is a later, later feature. But um, obviously, that does also involve um, horses from that region. Um, but, but we can't quite equate the same thing. But we know that there is trade and, in, and that genetic input coming in as early as that. Now, one of the things we'll know shortly is just how extensive that is and at what point it really increases. 
um, because at the moment we haven't got the results from all of the, the work that we've done. Um, all the sequencing has been done, all the analysis of that data has not. So within the next year, we'll have actually a very good understanding of um, of, of, of um, the injection of different lineages from different places. Uh-huh. Um, but we do also have some other forms of direct evidence for the movement of horses. For a start, there is historical record of horse trade between um, England and, and the continent. And there are also lots of references to horses being gifted by other kings and things like that. But apart from that, we have a, a site in um, Westminster uh, called the Elverton Street site, which is a very unusual site because it's a, a sort of almost a horse cemetery. Now, this doesn't happen, actually, anywhere else, really. Um, <laughs> horse bones just end up mixed in with other bones. There's not sort of a place where people buried horses largely whole. And this is a bit of an exception, having really a fairly large number of horses buried in pits. Not necessarily buried nicely laid out as if, you know, as if a, a human cemetery, but a place where they were getting rid of whole horses. And, of course, it's in Westminster. And at this date... It's in the late medieval in Westminster. I mean, there's pretty much what's, what's there is the abbey and the palace. This is a, you know, a, a very significant, you know, we're not talking about the city of London. We're talking about the elite Westminster, which was separated from the city at that point. So, so these could well be elite horses. And we've um, looked at um, isotopes in the horse's teeth. As a horse is growing its teeth, it will record in the enamel as the enamel is laid down, as the horse's tooth forms in the young animal, signatures from the geology on which it was feeding. Ah. So it's there eating away in a particular place. It's taking in uh, isotopic signals from the geology um, that it's eating on, and that gets reflected in the tooth enamel as it grows. So if that horse moves during the period the tooth is growing, then we will potentially see a shift if it goes from one geology to another. And we can now analyze for that. It's quite an expensive process, but what you do is is the way that we're doing it to get a very accurate, detailed sequence is we, we burn a track with a laser along the enamel and then a very expensive mass spectrometer uh, basically sniffs what comes off that laser track as you go up and and you get this sort of change in particularly strontium is what we look at, the, the, the stabilized states of strontium. We do see movement. So, for instance, we see interesting examples where some of the horses stay very static until they are, um, you know, three years old or whatever, and then start to move, which probably indicates that that that's when they're going into service. Yes. That they're actually just being kept somewhere like those colts um, for a while until they're trained and so on. And then they go into service and start moving. So we see that as good. But we also see some horses that come from somewhere a very long way off. They come from a completely different type of geology, and we would argue uh-huh. a geology that doesn't exist in in Britain. Right. So we might there be actually cap- capturing um, chemically the import of a horse. I was going to ask you what the most exciting, you know, new things going on in zoo archaeology are, but I like I think you've already answered that question with, you know, the genetic analysis uh, especially epigenetic analysis and then, you know, isot- isotopic analysis, all those things are super cool. So let me, like, if I was to ask that question now, I would say, other than horses, what is the next zoo archaeologist uh, we should have on our podcast? What animal should they be talking about? Uh, that is, you know, an, an interesting animal from the, from the perspective of zoo archaeology. Is it cattle? Um, 
Yes, lots of work's been done on cattle at the moment, and there's lots of genetics on that too. Have you done Have you done fallow deer yet? We have no. We, no, we have not done deer at all. No. Well, I could tell you that one of my uh, colleagues, Naomi Sykes, who's also in Exeter, had a big project on fallow deer, so she was able to track because that's not a native native deer species, so it's associated with coming in after the Normans, um, although it's a slightly uh-huh. more complicated story than that, because it, it was actually introduced briefly uh, in some elite places by the Romans and then later again post the Norman conquest. But she's got quite a complicated story of that and also about uh, the cultural side of the use of fallow deer and how they, they took over from other deer types uh, in, in the medieval world. So she does have a very neat, she does have a very neat story that's, that's the story of fallow deer. But in relation to other, the, to the, to the um, um, domestic, I don't mean domestic and domesticated animal, I just mean in terms of British, the British species of red and roe deer. Right. Well, perfect. Yeah. So, so she, if, she, if yeah, you... she would be a good person to talk to. <laughs> If you run, if you run into her, you can let her know that I, she might be getting an, an email from me because that sounds like a great, a great animal to do and a good follow up to our rabbit episode, which is also about sort of an animal which was introduced at some un, unspecified point uh, and about which archaeologists have had something to say. Uh, so so she that would be, she would be a able good to tell addition. you about that as well. Actually, <laughs> nice, nice. That's something else she's done done work on and hairs. Yeah, yeah, rabbits um, and hairs. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, yeah, indeed. we're running out of time, but I, I really wanted to thank you for this fascinating conversation and uh, and giving us your your time and also your recommendations as to uh, you know future topics um, where we should be bringing in archaeologists. If you have questions or comments or suggestions about future episodes, we would love to hear from you. Just go to realfantasticbeasts.com and you will find lots of ways to join the conversation. Thank <laughs> you.